Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 138. We are still in the midst of Jesus' crucifixion from last week. All kinds of images were painted between the four Gospel accounts. We saw where Jesus was continuing to embrace his suffering to the fullest effect with not drinking the the wine mixed with gall that was hinted at potentially alleviating some pain. Mm. We see the fulfillment of prophecy with the Roman soldiers not wanting to tear his main tunic and casting lots to see who's going to get it, which was seen previously in the Hebrew scriptures. We see Jesus asking his father to forgive these people who are wrongfully killing him because he says that they don't actually realize what they're doing which is just I mean not only for Jesus but for any human being to be in that situation hanging on the cross on at the point of death already from being scourged and whipped and everything in between to show mercy to your enemies is just amazing Yeah, Um, and then we see unintentional prophecy kind of being filled where Pilate writes the phrase Jesus of Nazareth King of the Jews uh, for the sign over Jesus's head instead of what the chief priest wanted him to say which was this man said that he was the King of the Jews and very stoically Pilate's like what I have written I have written (laughs) (laughs) and then Jesus kind of transfers authority or responsibility of his mother to John, the disciple, um, when he says, like, woman, behold your son, and, you know, behold your mother to the disciple, and showing him continuing to fulfill the Torah and honoring his father and mother. And then we ended with just images of people passing by, where this crucifixion site is happening at Golgotha and deriding him, telling him, like, you know, get yourself off the cross. If you're the son of God, you said that you would rebuild the temple, so save yourself. Uh, and, like, he can save others, he can heal others, but he can't save himself. If this is really the king of Israel, let him come down. So it's just so hard to imagine people treating a human being in that state in that way. Yeah. Yeah, some of them were walking by just going, S-M-H. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they would have if they knew about that. Yeah. So, it, you know, what's funny about this, Samuel, is at the pace we're going, it's possible it'll take us as long to get through the crucifixion text <laughs> as it took him to go through it. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, you know, there's there's just a lot here, and I say it because I know what's coming up. They're just... There's way more commentary than there is text, but it's just, there's just a lot happening in this moment. So there's a lot for us to talk about. So we're 138 weeks in. Why pick up the pace now? That's right. Yeah. Why, why all of a sudden hurry? So let's pick up. We're going to look at Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. And he's the only one that has this part of the story. So let's do that. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Whoo, boy. 
Now this, I, okay, first of all, there's some absolutely wonderful, great stuff in here. And, you know, maybe a thing or two that people get a little out of whack or whatever. So let's start working through it, Samuel. First, if you remember, you actually made a comment about it. Matthew earlier had made it sound like both criminals, <laughs> criminals, criminals <laughs> were mocking him, at, at least at some point. But here, Luke shows one criminal to be acting much like everyone else, except he, I don't know, when I read it, it, it's not like he's mocking as much as he is scolding. Hey, aren't you supposed to be the Messiah? Save yourself. You know, and, and you can almost hear the, aren't you supposed to, you know, rule and reign as king? Aren't you supposed to wipe everybody else out? Save yourself. Oh, and by the way, us too, while you're at it, it's it's funny. So one guy is still there, but the other criminal, he's different, or I don't know, maybe he's had some sort of change of heart, whatever. He's more like, dude, shut up. We're all about to die here. Don't you fear God at all? And and when he's talking about fearing God, he's talking about God's punishment of sin, God's justice and judgment. Samuel, what's the phrase that we always use for the fear of the Lord? It is the understanding that God rewards righteousness and punishes evil or sin. Yeah, exactly. Don't you fear God at all? And then he said, I mean, it's awesome. It's almost it, like he's, he's really seeing what's happening in the moment. We're getting what we deserve. We, we need to account for our deeds before God. But this guy, he hasn't done anything wrong. What every what, what everyone's saying and doing to this guy has got to be making God mad. And 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 again, it, it's like he understood that God himself would recompense Jesus for the injustice suffered. Now, this is an interesting thing. I, I went ahead and put his name on it because I didn't get a chance to research, find anybody else to say it or whatever. Uh, Daniel Lancaster says that this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is addressed directly. So it's like two people actually talking and one person uses his name. It's the only place where Jesus is di addressed directly by name without some sort of additional or honorific title. Hmm. Usually they'll call him rabbi or teacher or, you know, something mm -hmm. like that. But I just thought that was really interesting. The one guy in all of the Gospels is one of the ones hanging on a cross next to him. So that was kind of weird, but that's just a side note. Back to this guy. So this guy's change of heart, it's actually apparently way more than that. He recognizes somehow that, that Jesus is no mock king. He is the real deal the promised king of the line of David, the Messiah. Now, how he comes to this, we'll never really know or understand. I mean, in the text, he's making fun of him, mocking him, and then all of a sudden he sees clearly, whatever. But think about that, Samuel. Is that not almost exactly the way it is for, for many of us? I mean, there's this moment. It's uh, you call it maybe like a revelation or something, but but we just know something changes in us, and we just know, and we are his. And and so this guy, I don't know, he had some sort of moment like that. I guess he calls out to Jesus, "Remember me when you take your rightful place as king, when you come into your kingdom." Now, it, it would be amazing if this convict understood, you know, like the whole big picture, the fact that there was going to be death and resurrection and ascension and a return, but he was probably thinking about something more immediate. He, I think that he also probably still assumed that he was going to do something. And because, think about it, all of the other people that have been around him all these years they still don't seem to have a good grasp on the big picture. They have to experience it and only come to understand kind of after the fact, for the most part. 
So I don't know. It's just kind of, it's amazing to think about. Even this guy who's showing amazing faith in a moment may, may have very wrong picture in his mind and yet uh, the right picture about him being king. But anyway, he says this and Jesus says an amazing thing. What you're thinking is true and you can count on it. In fact, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I don't know if you remember, Samuel, I started the thing about, hey, people try to uh, list off these seven words mm-hmm. that Jesus says while he's on the cross, whatever. This is, this is often on the list, uh, like number two. Here's the thing, Samuel, do you hear how today you will be with me in paradise could be sort of good news and bad news? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like saying, hey, dude, here's the thing. Uh, we're both going to be dead. Before the day's over. <laughs> well, that seems like bad news. <laughs> but you'll be with me in paradise, which is probably the opposite of this guy's expectation. It's actually hope for the judgment, not dread. So that's good news. Yeah, sorry, you and I are both going to be dead. However, there's a silver lining. We're both going to be in paradise. So I don't know. I thought that's pretty good. Now, just as a reminder, you never know if people are listening to the whole podcast or joining in, whatever. Our view of this, uh, paradise, it's in what the Jews called Sheol. It's the grave. And the grave, it it represents, okay, we always think of something down. Whatever it is, it's something outside of creation. So you might think of it as spiritual or the heavenlies or something like that. But in the grave, you have paradise and Gehenna. I'm sure there's more, but these two, I don't know, they're somehow situated next to each other or something like that, as we saw in the story where you can see from one to the other. But this place, it's for the time of death. It's when our disembodied immortal spirit goes, it goes there for comfort, that would be paradise, or it goes there for punishment, that would be Gehenna. And all of this is occurring while you're waiting for the resurrection and the judgment and everything that follows. So that's the good news. We're both going to be dead. We're going to be in paradise. Even at this moment, uh, and, and oh, okay, what moment? Uh, the moment where Jesus is living 2,000 years ago and he's saying this stuff. Uh, even at this moment today, you and I are sitting here talking about this. There, there are many in paradise. So even in Jesus's day, there are many in paradise, and, and you might think, well, like who? And you could, well, here's one great example, Abraham. Abraham is in paradise. Well, Jesus and this criminal were going to join Abraham and the many others who are in paradise. Now, for what it's worth, in like traditional thinking, when we, we're trying to imagine, well, what is this paradise like? They, there's this association between paradise and Eden the Garden of Eden, like they're synonyms for one another. I don't know that we should think of them as literally the same place. That probably doesn't fit, but they are, they are uh, equal uh, in a sense, or, or, or you would say they're very similar, something like that. So there's that. This guy's going to be there. And then ah, this, I, 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 this is, I think it's good and it's bad, but let's, let's talk about it. Many look at these verses right here, this guy on the cross, hey, I, you know what, I, I, I believe or whatever, uh, Jesus says you'll be with me in paradise. They see this as conclusive evidence that bedside conversions are as valid as any other kind of conversion. So let's say the easy part first. It is true. I mean, how do you look at this scripture and say that somehow that couldn't be the same for someone else in history? Of course, it must be true. But I, I think we at least need to be honest with ourselves and say, listen, if the person having this bedside conversion, if they are in fact as sincere as this criminal was. Now, I can't judge it. I, I don't know looking at a person, listening at a person, watching a person. I don't know how sincere they are. I have no idea how sincere this criminal was, but Jesus did. He thought this was all for real. And so that was awesome. So it's amazingly good news 
And it's it's good news for many people over many ages. This is great. But I got to say, I, I think this story has been abused. It, it's somehow it gets twisted. It's like, hey, if it's good enough for Bob, you know, five minutes before he dies. Well, people are suggesting or, or they seem to walk away with the suggestion that somehow our manner of living doesn't really matter. You just, you know, you need to make your decision before it's too late. You know, you just you just need to believe, and that's where this word believe gets confused. I think this adds to it anyway, because they think, well, I mean, the criminal didn't go and do anything, so it's all got to be like, you know, just in your brain or in your heart. It's that mental ascent, right? Because he didn't get to do anything to show his faith or belief. Uh, I just, I think that is really, really messed up because God sees and knows the heart. There is a difference between true repentance and not. And if there is true repentance in the heart, you will behave differently. You will act differently. In this guy's case, he didn't have the opportunity or the time, but God could still see the heart. So if there's a bedside conversion, you know, there needs to be some sort of true repentance, whatever that might look like in those last few minutes. Again, I'm not the judge. I'm just saying it seems unwise to count on it. But anyway, for those that do have the time and the opportunity to sort of demonstrate their faith, a life of obedience, and again, we always make sure we say, look, that we're talking about best effort here, but it's a life of obedience to his will as it's articulated in Torah at the very least. Uh, It is required for all of us, at least in the sense that it is the evidence of our belief, the evidence of our faith. And, you know, even to the point, it doesn't have to be this, but even to the point that others could sort of obviously see and know the heart that you have, kind of the way that God does. But of course, it's easier and much more thorough from his perspective. If there is no evidence in our lives, there is no real belief or faith. And it's the thing that separates the sheep from the goats. You can look at them and you can know, and not necessarily us, definitely God. And right, admittedly, there are many secret things, both good and bad, but, and just to wrap it up, I know we've said all these things before, but we keep saying them for whoever, our obedience isn't effectual, as in it does not earn our salvation or it doesn't uh, sort of uh, make our salvation possible or any of those things. God and Jesus took care of that part, you know, with the actual redemption salvation. That's the story we're in right now. But our obedience, it's kind of like an identifier, the same way we talk about with the sheep and the goats. So anyway, sorry I had to get on my soapbox there, Samuel, but that's that section. You got anything? Yeah, what you say is important. And I just wanted to add, we don't know the differentiation in the type or manner of reward that someone is going to receive from God in the next age concerning their life, their amount of repentance and loyalty. So like this, like what you said, affirming that this guy's act of reaching out to affirm the identity of who Jesus was can be true and he can have a share in the next age with God but that doesn't mean that like he's going to get the same reward as someone's life that we see in the scriptures such as Abraham or Moses or even one of the disciples whoever it's like the, the it seems to me like the scriptures paint that God is going to give like there there's going to be differentiation in the the types of reward and the way that you get to experience the next age with God in the in the redeemed heavens and earth. So yeah, I just wanted to to offer that as a an addendum that might help people who are wrestling with this guy getting a free pass, so to speak. Yeah, it's kind of like the workers. He gets some early in the morning, some in the middle of the day, some late in the day, right? Yep. I thought we'd get more. And, you know, 
God could do what he wants. So yeah, good point. Yeah. Good point, Samuel. I also wanted to bring up, man, I feel like this section could be a potential proof text for people who are on the side that says that our ultimate destiny is that, you know, God died for, like Jesus died for our sins and our ultimate reality is it allows us to be able to go to heaven with Jesus. Uh, oh, right. And like here in this section, the criminal says like, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then his next thing is like, today you will be with me in paradise. And I, I, I just can't help but think that some people might take that to mean like, oh, like going to paradise is like coming into Jesus's kingdom. But I would argue that that's not what Jesus is saying. I, like I would say like Jesus is saying like to the criminal, like I'm not going to wait until I take my plate, my rightful place on the throne in Jerusalem, whenever the father decides to bring me back for the second time to be the conquering king. Like you're going to be able to experience goodness while you wait for that time to come when my kingdom will be literally established. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like a comfort to the person to say that you won't have to wait until that day where I actually get to deserve the recognition that I should have had now. Um, you, you will be taken care of spiritually disem in a disembodied state until I resurrect you and let you experience my rule from the earth. Yeah, that's funny. It reminds me one time I got to actually speak at a church and I titled my message, You're Not Going to Heaven. <laughs> it's kind of smart alecky. But the point that I was trying to get across to them wasn't so much that what they think about what happens after you die and all that kind of thing, not that there wasn't some truth in it, but I was trying to snap them out of the thinking that that's the end of the story. The end of the story is us resurrected, living on an earth, a new earth. And most people get to the part about, hey, I die and I go to heaven, you know, or paradise or however you view that. And th to them, that's just like the end of the story. And it's not. There's so much more. So, yeah. Anyway, good point, Samuel. What else? That's all for now. Okay. Well, let's see what we got. Uh, boy, this is a lot of stuff. We're looking at Matthew chapter 27. Verses 45 to 51, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 38, Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 46, and John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. And we're going to read from Matthew. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Wow. Been doing this a podcast a long time, and Jesus just died. Dang. This is a moment. We should have uh, put some disclaimer before we did this section. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've been building a long time, but we're here. So, all right, let's talk about some of the details. Again, if you remember, John had told us that it was the sixth hour, which is around noonish, but that was back at Pilate's place. And then Mark later told us that it was only the third hour, about, you know, 9 a.m. ish, when they were crucifying him. So 
Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they've, they've all got us at the sixth hour. So now we're around noonish. And, and something awesome happens. For three hours, darkness is over the land. Well, the way Luke says it, it, it sounds like the sun's light failed. Interesting way to, to put it. But this is supposed to be from about noon to 3 p.m. These are all ish, noonish to 3 p.m. ish, right? Here's the thing, Samuel. We've got some really amazing astronomical software show you where all the stars and everything were, you just everything all across time. It's super amazing and, and proven to be amazingly accurate in a lot of things. So using those tools astronomically, we can go back to this moment, even if we don't even if we don't know the exact year, we can still look around all this stuff and we go, you know what? We can rule out any kind of eclipse. That's not what happened here on this day. Didn't happen. This has to be something more like the Egyptian plague of darkness. It doesn't say that it was like it or the same or whatever, but just trying to, to make a connection. Would this be more like an eclipse or more like an Egyptian plague? Well, it's more like an Egyptian plague. Now, it says that it's from noon to 3 p.m. and then all of a sudden the, it lights up again. What I don't know is, so, so did Jesus start talking and then all of a sudden the darkness left? That would have been kind of a cool effect. Or was it just that, hey, the sun kind of came back, light came back, and once that happened, Jesus started speaking again? I mean, that also would have been interesting, cool. Well, I, we, it doesn't really say. But either way, at that moment, so it's like 3 p.m.-ish, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Now, just so you understand, this is in Aramaic. And it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just to make a note of it, here's another one of those seven words. If you were looking at a list in a book somewhere, it's probably like number four on the list. But we're told... That after he says this, because in Aramaic it was Eli, Eli, we're told that some that were standing there completely misunderstood. They thought he was calling for Elijah, presumably to come get him, to save him, something. But this Eli in Aramaic, it's obviously referring to, to God and not Elijah. That's why we keep saying that. Now, this is important though, Samuel. Jesus in this moment, remember how we've talked over and over and over about how human he is while he is on the earth. He was feeling abandoned. He wasn't. We're going to say more about that, but he was feeling it. And think about it, Samuel. Is this not a moment that's very similar to the one that he had in the garden? He, yeah. as a human, he's going through turmoil. He's experiencing all this stuff in his turmoil right here, right now. It, it, it's reasonable to think, man, he's going through all this stuff. He's feeling abandoned by God. And, and you can even imagine his mind searching through the scriptures, maybe looking for some sort of wisdom, looking for some sort of instruction, whatever could possibly help him survive this moment. And what's amazing about this is, could it be that he was just on the cross, he's right at the very end, and this is just the thought that came out of his head? Why have you forsaken me? Sure, it's possible. But is it not also possible and even reasonable to think in this moment, as he's suffering through this, looking to the things that he knows, the scriptures and everything else, is it not reasonable that in his mind, he could have in fact settled on Psalm 22, about the sufferer of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 begins with what line, Samuel? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, exactly. He says the beginning of that Psalm, which if it wasn't just a, hey, I was just having a moment, why have you forsaken me? But he was actually, you know, th this was, this was the scripture that actually spoke for him, if you will. He calls out Psalm 22. And just real quick, just people uh, treat Jesus' statement here, I would want to say 
maybe too literally to some degree. Right. Just because Jesus was feeling forsaken by God the Father doesn't mean that he actually was. He mean he you could say he was having a moment of weakness in his humanity with enduring this suffering but so many people say like see like Jesus Jesus is saying that God has forsaken him because he has the entire sin of all of human history on him right now and God can't be near him so he has to forsake him but like I feel like that's putting yeah. things into the text that shouldn't be yeah. there and yeah I just wanted to to bring that up no you are absolutely right and you know what we're gonna let's just keep talking about that so amazingly it isn't stated here at all in the text but we've talked about this so many times when people reference just one little piece of scripture and everybody else has this quick recall of oh i know what he's talking about i know where that's from whatever doesn't say anything about that here but there must have been many there who recognized this as the opening line of psalm 22 just just want to get that out there. And I didn't read from John, but John also includes that famous line, uh, it is finished. Uh, we'll talk about that. Now, some go further and they think, well, maybe that was John's way of referencing the end of that same psalm. The end of that psalm has, he has done it, which, okay, it's kind of like it is finished. Uh, it's a bit of a stretch, but you can kind of see it. I'm not endorsing the idea. I'm just saying some people go there too. Now, why is this important? And this is to your point, Samuel. This is where I was trying to get. Many people misunderstand this very idea that God did, in fact, actually forsake him. But I'm like you, Samuel. I'm going to argue that doesn't even make sense. The psalm that's alluded to here, Psalm 22, it portrays God as a faithful deliverer. In the psalm, the sufferer is waiting, but he is also trusting that he will come through. Remember, it begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sufferer's waiting, but trusting. The sufferer experiences many things in that psalm that mirror exactly what Jesus has gone through or is going through or whatever. So if we miss the beauty of this illusion and take this literally, or I would say too literally, well, well then we're missing the point. Just ask yourself some of these simple questions. If Jesus is on that cross as the ultimate and final act of obedience to God in his life. Well, why would God forsake him for that? I mean, to quote Paul, by no means he would be pleased with Jesus in this moment. I mean, it's it's total obedience, perfect obedience. Now, here's another one. Samuel, do we like to say that Jesus is God? Uh, we have said that a time or two all over the church for ages and ages everybody jesus is god and people argue about exactly what it means if it's true or false or whatever but it's it's a common theme jesus is god well okay if jesus is god and god is god how would he forsake himself you know what i'm saying that's kind of a weird Mm -hmm. question and and here's another one so if jesus is god and if jesus can bear all of our sin. Well, why can't God even look at it? I mean, that's a little weird, right? And and by the way, Samuel, isn't God seeing the sin of the world pretty much all the time? Yeah. Of course he is. Yeah. If we go back and look at life in the tabernacle, how things actually worked, you get into the details, it defies all of this thinking that somehow Jesus was forsaken and God couldn't look on him because of the sin, blah, blah, blah. It defies all of that. Like the sufferer of Psalm 22, Jesus feels forsaken while he awaits deliverance, but he also expects that God will prove to be the ultimate savior, not 
in, in this case, not just of him, but of all mankind. That's what you were talking about, Samuel. That's me agreeing with you. We good on that point? Yeah, just a quick cross-reference. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Huh? Good. Good. I wish I'd remembered that. You got me. I love that. Yeah, that's so it's good. It's not in God's character to abandon himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, it reminds me of joke and I'm not going to do it. All right. Aww. So So, uh, you know, so let's get back to the story. So some some in the crowd, they want to see if Elijah really will come. And again, this is an example of people being people. Now, Samuel, uh, this is us, SMH, shaking our heads, right? (laughs) (laughs) A bystander jumps into action. We don't know who it was. It could have been a, well, I say bystander. It could have been a soldier or something. I have no idea. But anyway, somebody jumps into action. And this is getting back to your point about the wine with the myrrh or the gall and then the sour wine, whatever. So he tries to give him some sour wine. Now, John tells us that Jesus actually said out loud, I thirst, which that gets counted as another one of those seven words of Jesus from the cross. If you're looking at the list, it's usually around number five. Now, here's the thing. I I don't know what to do with this, Samuel, because this is just weirdness. Remember the guy jumps up, he gets a sponge and he, you know, sticks it on a reed and he puts it up to Jesus's mouth, okay? The crazy thing is that in Rome, among the soldiers, all this kind of stuff, there was a time, it seems to be around Jesus's time, there was this thing where, I don't know what you think about it, like your little kit that you get as a soldier, you get a sponge with a stick, maybe it was a reed or something like that. And the point of it was that it was like an early version of toilet paper. Now, I know that is super gross when we're thinking about this story, whatever. And and so what what we the reason that it becomes important is that scholars are questioning, look, uh, on one hand, this seems like this is just pure. Oh, we just want to help him. We want to give him a little drink. We want to do this, whatever. That's kind of the way it reads to me. Some of them are not so sure. They're wondering if somehow this sponge on a stick thing was was actually meant as some further type of mocking or something like that. But when you think about, you know, like it's real purpose, that just makes it really, really gross. You don't know what's going on. Hopefully it was a a fresh, new, clean, unused sponge. And if you think practically, uh, I've heard some stuff how that would work for a Roman soldier in between uses, they would disinfect that sponge by dipping it in either salt water or vinegar. It's cleanup time. So... And you can think, you know, depending on the amount of yeah. mocking that these people were wanting to do, there could have been a chance that they did that that was not a clean sponge yeah, when yeah. they gave it to uh, yeah. Jesus. I don't like the thought of it at all. I just didn't want it to go unmentioned. And, and partly because of this, when you read John, it makes it sound like he was actually thirsty and he drank from that sponge. <laughs> so... I don't know what to do with it. I'm just sort of throwing it out there. And in my mind, because it's an ugly picture, I just go, no, it was a fresh sponge and everything was cool. <laughs> but anyway, John also tells us this, the, the you know, the, the drink thing. He's telling us that that also fulfills some scripture. And this relates to what you were talking about earlier with the drink. We'll read it again. Psalm 69, 21. Samuel, why don't you read that? They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to, to drink. All right. So, uh, now, I know it says food and drink, okay? But at the very least, this suggests two different uh, concoctions, two different offerings to Jesus to, con- you know, ingest something, whatever. Okay, the earlier drink that the soldiers offered to him was you know, potentially to numb him. That was the myrrh or the gall. And so maybe that kind of relates to the poison that John, that comes from Psalm 69. But this sour wine, that was more like for his thirst. So they're seeing two very different things in here. And the idea seems to be that they were, uh, uh, again, much like the numbing him was to help him last longer. 
the idea here when they give him sour wine also seems like, well, maybe they're trying to help him last long enough for Elijah to come and save him, something like that. But we know a little bit more about this sour wine. It was a cheap vinegar wine. And I don't know if that's the same thing as the modern day wine vinegar, whatever, but it's a cheap vinegar wine, but it was mixed with a lot of water. They even had a name for it. It was Posca. Now, the question is, does it even count as wine? And the only reason I ask is if we say, yes, it counts as wine, then you got to go back to the Passover cup and say, look, Jesus wasn't saying he would never drink wine until the, with them in the kingdom. He was saying he would never drink a Passover cup with them. If you don't count it as wine, then you could, if you wanted to, say, yeah, he's not going to take any wine at all uh, until the kingdom or whatever. I don't know that that matters. I'm just saying there are some details you might want to wrestle with. So there's that. Now, if we look, uh, this again, it wasn't in Matthew, uh, but Jesus utters one final cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, this actually is a a reference back to Psalm chapter 31, verse 5, but it's also uh, usually on the list. It's like number seven of the Jesus's seven words. He, it's similar to uh, when, was it John that said, it is finished? Anyway, one of the other guys says, it is finished. That would be probably number six on the list. Uh, maybe he said both, either. I, I don't know, but you can take your pick. He had finished the work he was sent to do. He breathes his last and he yields up his spirit. That is a super interesting phrase, Samuel, because we don't often think much about this, but logically, his spirit needed to be separate from the Holy Spirit in some way. So if you think about it, today you'll be with me in paradise. At that moment, like on that day, Jesus was in paradise as a disembodied spirit. And so was the criminal next to him. So was everybody else down there in paradise. Very interesting imaging for our brains, right? He's, we got we to gotta get that together in our heads. And, and this, is a, this is a difficult moment right here in our story. He's dead. Jesus is dead. The Messiah King has not taken up his throne to rule from Jerusalem. He just died like any other man, any other human. And for many, man, you got to know this moment was incomprehensible. What had just happened? What does this all mean? I mean, was he really the Messiah? How could he be? It's not fitting with the story that I know in my brain. But he did. He died. It was around the ninth hour of the day. Again, we're going to say 3 p.m.-ish. And this is important. It's pretty much at the same time the sacrifices for Passover are being done. Now, that's also when you would normally have the second daily sacrifice, but because it's Passover, they actually moved it up and did it earlier in the day so that it didn't get missed because they knew they had to do so many uh, sacrifices for Passover. And obviously, because it's 3 p.m., it's on Passover Eve, all the sacrifices are going on. This is really driving home that Passover lamb metaphor. And then, Samuel, have you ever wondered how many sacrifices they might have done on a day like this? Just in one one annual Passover day? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, if I was going to pick a number, I would want to be, say, like maybe a few thousand. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked. And again, you know, we're trusting on people who do all this research, you know, There have been many different counts across history, but when it's like really, really, really at its peak, like the biggest numbers that we can find, there are counts as high as 300,000 to 600,000. How is that even possible? I know. I know. It sounds impossible, but I don't know. You got to know there were thousands of priests Mm -hmm. and they did it for hours and everybody was coming from everywhere. You think about it, if the average size of the the number of people coming in, that would have suggested somewhere from three to six million people. So, I, you know, I don't know. But, I mean, that number isn't impossible. So, I, I just don't know, Samuel. But 
it's a it's a even if this number is co- completely wrong, it does at least make your brain go, "Wow, that could have been a really big number, mm-hmm. bigger than we imagine." So anyway, think about this. On this particular day, they would have had to start all of that sacrificing during the darkness. I mean, this <laughs> that would have been difficult, right? And all of these all of these animals, they would have had to have been skinned. They would have been carried on poles. They would have been uh, roasted in ovens. There were roasting places all over the city. I mean, this is a big, big operation, big operation. But Jesus dies and the earth shakes. Rocks were split. Now, we're not going to talk about it much here. There are some that think there's this big, I don't even know what to call it. It's like this big lentil rock or something over the entrance to the temple. Some think that that rock was split. But there were so many weird accounts about that, I didn't want to really include it. But anyway, the earth shook, rocks were split, creation itself was responding to what had just happened. It's pretty impressive, pretty awesome. Now, we're told that in the temple, this specifically, that the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, which is saying torn in two. It's in two pieces. Now. Luke actually had this a little earlier. It was happening in the darkness, okay? The the other gospels are saying, no, it happens when he died. Now, many have gone on and on about how this represents like the end of the sacrificial system, the end of the temple, the end of the old covenant, you know, presumably the Sinai covenant. Okay, I just want to say this. If any of the apostles thought that any of that was true, They never said so. Never. Does that not seem like something too important to leave out? They also never stopped participating in the temple, the sacrificial system, all that kind of stuff until, well, technically they did get barred from the temple at some point, but there was that. And then when the temple was destroyed, otherwise they continued to carry all this stuff out. Now, I know that there are a few people out there who are listening to us right now, and they're thinking, yeah, but what about Paul? Okay, I'm going to agree. You can only get ideas like, you know, the end of the sacrificial system, temple, old coming, from Paul, but you can only get that from Paul if you misread what he is actually saying. So we'll talk about it more. If we move on to Acts, you're going to see, we're going to make that stuff super clear, but that's not what's going on here. The, the, the tearing of the curtain represents something very different. So let's get back to that. This curtain, first of all, Samuel, 40 cubits tall. Do you know how tall that is in like American feet? I don't. 60 feet. Wow. That's a tall curtain. Yeah. Torn in two, top to bottom. And Samuel, it was thick. This curtain was, they call it a hand breadth. You know how wide that is? I'm looking at my hand from one width to one width, probably like four to six inches. Yeah, yeah. The actual measurement that they calculated in that day ranged from two and a half to four inches. That's a thick curtain. Yes, it is. And it's a tall curtain. And and uh, what we often don't know is that there were actually two curtains that were hung together. And now the, the the text isn't clear about this. I'll talk about that more in a second. If we're talking about the curtains that lead to the Holy of Holies, did they both tear? Was it only one? Whatever. I mean, it's a good question. The point is, this curtain guarded the way to the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies represents God, heaven, throne eternity okay uh, this this curtain was embroidered with the cherubim the the cherubim right do you remember where we saw cherubim before samuel big famous story in the early genesis uh, weren't, weren't they guarding the way uh, back into the entrance of the garden of eden after adam and eve were exiled exactly Exactly. The the curtains and the Holy of Holies were a picture of the Garden of Eden, the cherubim guarding the way to the Tree of Life. 
So, what is in the Holy of Holies? Well, okay, Second Temple, we don't think this is so much true, but we know in the Tabernacle, First Temple, what was supposed to be there was God's presence. Also, there was the Ark. And what was contained in the Ark? Manna. Well, manna represented life. Aaron's staff. And it wasn't just a staff. His staff had budded and it just remained like living. It was a staff. Well, that represented life. And then the tablets, which, okay, they were just the Ten Commandments, but they represented all of Torah. And and Torah is supposed to represent life. If we went to Proverbs 3.18, we notice it, well, it's talking about wisdom, but all through the scriptures, we know that wisdom is equated with Torah and vice versa. And it's telling us that wisdom is a tree of life. Torah is a tree of life. I mean, this is amazing. That's the picture. So when we go back to Genesis and it says they were guarding the way to the tree of life, the, the curtains represented the way to the tree of life, and they've been torn open. The way that had been guarded and blocked was now open. Jesus had opened the way to life, and he is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? He is that way. And I don't know what more evidence you need that he was not forsaken, but hold on to your hat because there is more. But anyway, this is just this is just amazing and cool stuff. Amazing, cool stuff. I have just a few more things, Samuel. I know this has been a lot, but there's more cool imagery. Uh, some people look at this and they go, hey, wait a second. If you look back at Jesus's baptism, it actually reads as if the heavens were torn open at that moment. So it's like the heavens are torn open and that is sending Jesus on a mission. Well, now at his death, the veil or the curtain is torn open. And that is like God receiving him back. Well, that's kind of a cool image. I don't know how far we should take it, but that's pretty good. Here's another one. Through Jesus, I think that we can, and we kind of talked about this already, but when we talk about this access to the tree of life, this access back to God, his his presence, all of that, Yeah, it was opened for Jesus, but I think it also represents that it's been opened for all, if by all we mean all of the faithful. So that's another one. And then here's a good image, Samuel. You remember when someone died or something really, really horrible happened, what was something that the Jews did to physically represent their grief and their sorrow? Oh, they would tear their robes. Yeah, the rending of their garments. It was a sign of grief and sorrow. And so some people look at this and they imagine, you know, God is supposed to be in that Holy of Holies. That's what it represents, right? And so they imagine the tearing of the curtain is like God rending his garments. Hmm. That's kind of a cool image, right? And, you know, I mean, God, it's as if God witnessed Jesus breathing his last and because he witnessed that, he tears his garments, the veil of the Holy of Holies. He tears them at Jesus's death. So anyway. Can I add a four Cool, point? cool stuff. Oh, yeah, please. Um, isn't there imagery in Revelation? I think this is in Revelation 19, and the section is verses 11 through 21, whenever the second coming of Jesus is depicted. But in the beginning of that section, it says, Then I saw heaven opened. So in the same way that you said that like the heavens were ripped open for the beginning of Jesus's ministry, the heavens were ripped open again for the returning of Jesus back to the heavenly realm. Well, here a third time, maybe the heavens are ripping open for the, the righteous return of King Messiah. Right. Samuel's on fire today. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Really good. Yeah, what else you got? Because, you know, I'm looking at this, and we're almost out of time, and the next section's long, too, and so we're at the end, other than anything you've got. Yeah, I've, I've got a couple things. I'll do the, cool. the less serious one first, and then end on a more pertinent thing compared to w- with everything you've been talking about. The first is the this whole darkness thing that you, you mentioned. So is the, yeah. is the Greek 
suggesting that it was like the darkness is like pitch black almost or is it more like it was sunny and then like miraculously it got like overcast cloudy because you know I know in in the Jesus movies they always depicted as it being just very overcast very gloomy and I'm, I'm just wanting to try to nail that home real quick yeah I don't yeah, I don't think the Greek is uh, that explicit. It's certainly not. Uh, uh, it's not the kind of thing you look at and go, "Oh, well, the word here means pitch black." No, I, I don't think so, at all. Uh, and that's why we're saying, look, uh, on one hand, we got to count out the eclipse, which you know is probably more like what they would depict in the movies or whatever. And it, it's it's reasonable to think that it, okay, maybe it did look like that. It's just that astronomically. We don't have any evidence of that, and that's why I lean toward, well, hey, we've seen God do a lot of supernatural things. Why not this, too? Well, and then on that note, you had mentioned something about, like, the the light returning in the moment when Jesus speaks. Um, And are, are you getting that from the beginning of that section in Matthew 27 where it gives us a time range from... From the sixth yes. hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness, and then the next verse, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out. So, okay, yes. okay. I thought yeah. in the moment I was thinking, like, it kind of sounds like the the light had to return in order for Jesus to speak, and I'm like, well, he, Jesus could have spoken in the dark, and his disciples could have heard it, but now I see that the text shows that there was a limit to how long that darkness lasted. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually kind of what I was getting back. I mean, this was ages ago, the beginning of my commentary, <laughs> where I was going, hey, you know what? We we can't even really tell. Is it that thing of Jesus talking? And that almost seems to pre- precipitate the light coming back, right? Did he start in the dark and that's what brought the light back? Or did the light come back and then Jesus started talking? We don't know. But those two things seem to be around the, around the same moment. Okay. So, yeah. That helps. Okay, now the more serious note. Another thing that gets implanted within this part of Jesus' story is that within this crucifixion scene that the wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus (laughs) right here. And we just finished this section where Jesus has now passed away and I just want to ask the question rhetorically, like, where do you see the wrath of God in this picture? And for me personally, I don't see God's wrath being poured out. I see an unjust situation where a man who was perfectly righteous and he was innocent of all crimes was put to death in one of the most egregious ways and the effect of that is overflowing merit for humanity and the world. Exactly. And I just want to add this, and this can be your own homework. If you go on to Google and try to type in, because, I mean, you hear it in songs, you hear it in sermons about the wrath of God being poured out or the wrath of God being satisfied through Jesus. Try to find some reference where, like in the scriptures, especially the New Testament, where it says that. I think you will be surprised at the amount of references that you're going to find. Hint, it's zero. Yeah, and that's, I think what you have said is so important, Samuel. Rather than looking at this part of the story, looking at what's happening on the cross and all that kind of stuff, rather than trying to see God punishing, God lashing out, God, you know, all this kind of stuff, like, He's had all this stuff building up in him for ages, and he finally just unleashes it all on Jesus. No. What what you should be seeing in this moment is merit and favor. I mean, that, that is what's happening in this moment, and that is the thing that we benefit from. That's what grace is. When God, let's just use the, the very literal example, in the judgment you will fall short, and yet God will call you innocent, not guilty, 
And it's because he is willing to apply some of Jesus's merit and favor to you. It's the same way that God did that with Israel because of Moses's merit and favor. It's the same way that God did that for mankind because of Noah's merit and favor. And we can look through many examples in the scriptures where God does that. He has favor for one that gets applied to others who don't deserve it. And that is the imagery we have here. Jesus's merit and favor is so great that it can be applied to all who are willing to accept and receive it. Mm-hmm. And so that's the story. And you're right. I mean, we have to focus on that's what's happening here on the cross. It is not wrath. And just so you know, if you are found to be unfaithful, not his, you are a goat and not a sheep and all that kind of stuff, you will experience the wrath that you deserve. You will get Mm -hmm. that, not Jesus. And even in a small way, like in an isolated representative portent kind of way, Israel experiences this Mm. wrath because of rejecting him, rejecting the kingdom, all that kind of stuff over the next 40 plus years, the destruction of the temple and all those kind of things. But yeah, Samuel, that is such a great point. And it's hard because you will hear it in so many churches and so many places and like your point in songs and all that stuff. It's 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 touching imagery, and it, it helps us to really feel a gratitude toward God. So there are good aspects to it, but it's just not very accurate. Yeah. There's nothing nothing that it really can stand on as a foundation. So, yeah, think good think point. about that. The first, well, you mentioned it earlier. The first time that the gospel texts say that the heavens were open with the baptism of Jesus and the receiving of the Spirit, the beginning of his ministry. What does God say about Jesus? He says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. If yeah. if Jesus's conduct of life, if his faithfulness remained consistent from that moment then until this point when he's on the cross. Including death. Yeah. Why would God's disposition towards his son change from pleased to not pleased, i.e. wrath. Like that that brings into the question the goodness of God to to change how he sees yeah. this son who is fulfilling Torah. So just keep that well, in even, mind. Yeah, even if they don't think that, if they think, no, he was pleased with Jesus, but it's the wrath against all of us. We're the ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all of us. You still got to go, okay, so God's going, yeah, I'm going to punish you instead of them. Is there anything righteous in that? Is there anything just in that? No. There's not. But when you turn it around and you say, no, but Jesus's merit saves us from some punishment we deserve. Well, is there mercy in that? Yeah. And 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 is there justice when you say that God is sovereign? Is there is there even justice in that because God can choose and do if you turn it the other way, if it's wrath and punishment, that's unjust to do to him. If you turn it the other way and say, yeah, but we're not getting what we deserve. It's like, yeah, you you could look at that as unjust, but when you balance that with mercy and sovereignty, then you go, ah, yeah, that's not a slam dunk. That doesn't have to be unjust, right? So it's, yeah. Anyway, it's a good point, Samuel. We, Anything else? Yeah, I mean, we said it earlier in this podcast that the concept in Judaism of the fear of the Lord or the beginning of wisdom is that it's the understanding that God rewards righteousness and he punishes disobedience. If that concept is true, then saying that Jesus is pun or God is punishing Jesus calls that concept into question. It it fundamentally opposes that concept within the structure of the faith of Jesus that he lived in, in the first century. So it it cannot be that like God will punish the disobedience of humanity who did not accept the merit of Messiah. That that will be true, and He will reward those who applied the merit of Messiah to their lives, but not yeah. Jesus, N- not in the slightest. Yeah. Well, you've convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? No. Nope. 
All right. Well, let's let them go. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.